0: Our third season is going to be heavily focused on Frankish history, what most know to be French history. We'll specifically delve into the lives of William the Conqueror, Eleanor of Aquitaine, and Joan of Arc before transitioning to Louis the Sun King, the French Revolution, and Napoleon. If you've listened to any of my prior episodes, though, you'll be pleased to see a number of sidetracks during this year's adventures including regular meandering into the history of the Vikings, Romans, as well as Haiti. So who exactly were the Franks, and why are they deserving of an entire season? Justifying that is what we hope to achieve today. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This episode is titled, Who Are the Franks?" History teachers tend to geek out when it comes time to teach about the Roman Republic and its subsequent formation of an empire that stretched across parts of three continents. In defense of my profession, the Roman Empire is really cool. Gladiators from across the vast empire were pitted against each other for sport, elephant armies crossed through the Pyrenees, and the Alps in a desperate attempt to tear the empire's capital asunder, and its pages of history are covered with some of the most colorful characters from the past, including the cross-dressing, incest-loving, nymphomaniac, horse-empowering artist that was Caligula. As you might be able to tell, I am one of those teachers that geeks out quite a bit on the subject. Characters aside, however, you can't adequately explain European history without first understanding the myth that was Rome. In fact, there are entire ages of European history which were devoted to the futile quest to reclaim the authority of Rome. The early Christian church, which controlled the fate of all Europeans for centuries, formed within the walls of Rome and continued to exert Roman influence on European life far beyond the lifespan of Caesar's kingdom. The centralization of European governments during the Age of Absolutism, as well as Europe's involvement in both the Age of Discovery and Imperialism, continued to represent the innate sense of manifest destiny that early Rome was endowed with. But we turn to the earlier portion of Roman history for our discussion today for it was during the Republic stage of the Empire's evolution that their legions came on to the land that now makes up the nation of France. The concept of a destiny filled with unlimited expansion and influence was already a part of the Roman Republic when Julius Caesar received his marching orders to invade Gaul, the largest portion of which makes up the modern-day territory of France. Part of the reason that we focused so much on Rome was its own willingness to write down its own history. Empires in Africa stretch further back and include civilizations that rivaled the size and spectre that was Rome. But their reliance upon an oral tradition means that we have been robbed of the intricate details that would have come with learning about their most colorful characters. Rome's penchant for the written word makes it easy for historians to separate the civilized world from the barbarians, a linguistic concept that immediately conjures up negative connotations. But it is important to note that the uncivilized are not always barbaric. John Green, a literary author who runs the YouTube show Crash Course, carefully reminds us that those people who choose to remain uncivilized aren't necessarily civilization's inferiors. Rather, the Hill People, as he likes to refer to them, have developed their own complex way of life, albeit one that we would likely not choose for ourselves. Most importantly, he points out that many of the uncivilized societies of the world choose to remain off of the grid in order to avoid slaving societies that would raid them of their people which happens to be the single greatest resource of all nomadic groups. This was a naturally occurring global phenomenon, with the Aztecs raiding the surrounding tribes for sacrificial candidates and for early societies in Southeast Asia, where the main impetus for war was to harvest individuals for enslavement. This meant that the known societies continually raided each other, For these slave-holding fiscal military states, it was either enslave others or become enslaved. But there is usually a third option, and in this case, it was to run and hide in the hills. The thought of groups abandoning civilization rather than failing to achieve it is best expressed in the words of the Portuguese friar Bernardino Sagan, who wrote that the people of the area, unable any longer to bear witness to the heavy oppressions and continual levies of men and money made upon them, have withdrawn themselves from their native soil with all their families. The land that was France at this point didn't yet hold the Franks. Rather, the marching Roman legions encountered stateless societies made up mostly of the Celtic and Aquitani peoples, a group which lived in the southwest of France, in land that would become known as Aquitaine, a region that would go on to dramatically influence Eleanor, as well as her son Richard the Lionheart. Just because human history is full of conquest doesn't mean that our nature is one of violence. Barbarians choosing to place significant distance between themselves and the civilized is proof that some of us just want to live out our lives in peace. Social incentives tend to be the main cause of violence, and the Roman Republic was no exception. Citizens of Rome were placed into two classes. The patricians, a rich noble class who ruled over the majority of the nation's plebeians. Julius Caesar was born to one of the most famous patrician families, one which claimed to be descended from the Roman Julia, who herself claimed to have been related to Julius, the son of the legendary Trojan prince Anais. To spruce up the family tree and make things even more interesting, Anais claimed to be the son of Venus, the goddess of love whom most know by her Greek name, Aphrodite. Anais not only receives a huge amount of tension in Homer's Iliad, but also features as the main character in Virgil's Aeneid, which helps to establish the mythological foundation story of Rome, namely that the civilization was founded by twins who had survived in the wilderness by suckling the teats of a she-wolf. Yep, Rome was pretty weird back in the day. Whether any of this is easily disproved by a simple 23andMe DNA test doesn't particularly matter, as the Caesars believed these myths about their family to be true. His divine lineage contributed to his greatness complex, something that manifested itself specifically through an obsession with Alexander the Great. The historian Plutarch tells us that Caesar openly wept upon achieving his thirty-third trip around the sun, for he realized that Alexander, by that age, had already created the single greatest land empire to that point in time. Julius, on the other hand, had hardly accomplished a thing by comparison. Although he had a strong family name, the Julie family was no longer wealthy by the standards of the time. If he were to achieve the fame that he believed his name entitled him to, he would have to climb the social ladder, and doing so quickly meant that he would have to quickly acquire a whole lot of fame and money. Which is where Gaul comes back into our story. In order to ascend to the tops of the Roman Republic, one needed to systematically rise through a series of positions. In order to begin as quaestor, one had to be recognized as a patrician and then be nominated by those who had already achieved a higher rank. This meant that patricians needed to curry favor with their peers, and with everyone competing for limited positions, it also meant that one had to do spectacular work to stand out from the crowd, or have serious money backing them. Once they joined the quaestor club, they were eligible to join the senate, before moving on to the position of aedile, which supervised the public games and festivals of Rome. These pageants were necessary to grow one's reputation among the masses of Rome's plebeians. A party master who is poor, however, makes for a less than suitable choice for this position. But for those who do well enough in pleasing the masses, the path was open for one to achieve the position of a praetor or even better, a proconsul, who served as the judge, jury, and executioner for one of the many territories of the ever-expanding land known as Rome. Julius Caesar first gained notoriety through some of his marriage choices, even earning the wrath of the sitting dictator Sola as it appears that Caesar's choice of marrying the daughter of the man's rival didn't sit too well with the dictator. The solution was for the dictator to issue a prescription, which despite its medically adopted name today, meant that anyone who brought Sola the head of Julius Caesar would be entitled to half of the man's property. Although many ascribe to the belief that all publicity is good publicity, one imagines that this wasn't the sort of fame that he was looking for. He survived the period of prescription by hiding out within the ranks of the military, where he became known as an excellent soldier and statesman. Upon Sola's death, he divorced his wife in favor of another and returned to climbing the social ladder by being named as the Games Master upon which he began a series of the most expensive and elaborate games that Rome had ever witnessed. In order to grow his name, he was forced to borrow recklessly and found himself hopelessly in debt, from which there were only a few ways out. After gaining enough popularity with the people, he was named to the position of proconsul and chose Gaul as the province he wished to rule over. Although Rome did a number of things to bring civilization to these foreign territories, the proconsul were not there out of a sense of benevolence. With near-dictatorial powers, they utilized their superior Roman legions in order to unearth every single bit of wealth imaginable. Caesar specifically utilized four separate armies to systematically divide and conquer the Celts and Aquitani pushing the former all the way to the English Channel. Plutarch's numbers are highly suspect, but he claims that the Gaelic Wars, as they were known, saw the subjugation of 300 tribes and the destruction of 800 cities. Quite a bit of Caesar's money gained in the wars came from the enslavement of his enemies, with Plutarch claiming that Caesar's wars killed one-third of the Celts in Gaul and enslaved another. Additionally, Gaelic silver, glass, pottery, food, and wine were all exported for trade throughout the Italian peninsula. This financial reward, and the necessity of it, was the first incentive that kept the Romans in a state of perpetual war. Glory was the second. Romans loved glory, and the highest reward given within the Republic was known as a tribute, during which a victorious military leader would be able to bring forth a legion of his soldiers into Rome for a fantastical military parade. Without newspapers or continuous instantaneous social media updates, these tributes were the most effective way of building one reputation and fame. While most patricians fought with all their means to scale the social ladder, only two were able to achieve the top position of Consul of Rome. Thus, fame and money were absolutely necessary if one wished to obtain ultimate power. Judging from the fact that the German title of Kaiser and the Russian rulers honorific of Tsar both originate from Julius Caesar, which is properly pronounced Julius Kaiser, we can safely assume that he utilized both the riches and fame that he achieved from Gaul effectively. Caesar systematically destroyed the foundations of the Roman Republic and was assassinated by the Senate in a last-ditch effort to save the dream that had been Rome. It proved to be too late, as Caesar's successors ruled over what became known as the Roman Empire, Codifying the policies of Caesar before eventually transforming themselves into living gods. During which, France continued to be a location where individuals hoping to become the next Caesar continued to wage war in perpetuity. Rome slowly decayed from within, besieged by stagnation from an over-reliance on slavery, economic unrest because of the cost of their wars, bureaucracy, as well as their twisted gladiatorial games and an early form of the bubonic plague. As the government faltered, Rome's borders became increasingly fragile and porous. Two groups emerged as Gaul became the epicenter of unrest within the empire. The first group were the Visigoths, who famously sacked Rome after emerging as the rulers of Aquitaine, and the second group were the Franks who emerged as the elite ethnic group in Belgica, the northern borderland that consisted of what is now France and Belgium. Rome collapsed from within, and a family known as the Merovingians filled the power vacuum during the subsequent dark ages of the 6th century. Still, the Romans had managed to leave their mark on the region. For instance, they had provided a model which consolidated small kingdoms into imperial provinces. Medieval France would utilize the same system to ensure a basis of loyalty to the throne. But there were reminders that were even more visible. For instance, there are still remnants of Roman amphitheaters, aqueducts, roads, arches, and monuments spread throughout the land. One of those infamous Roman walls still remains standing in the southern French city of Orange. Theatrical performances continue to this day, with the wall serving as the backdrop of a 2,000-year-old Roman-built amphitheater. what is perhaps the best literal instance for how the Romans' past remains tied to France's present, an inscription attributed to Louis the Sun King reads, Perhaps the finest wall in my kingdom. The New York Times lets us know that while French history books have a tendency to downplay their ancient Roman roots, local politicians in the southern portions of France embrace it, often offering special Roman menus during the quiet summer months, many of which feature 2,000-year-old recipes for dishes that are prepared with cumin, coriander, mint, and honey, a variety of ingredients that spanned the empire. Roman festivals featuring fake gladiators are performed in the area twice a year, and today 350,000 tourists visit the ancient arena that remains standing in Nimes. The Merovingians were the Franks from the north which came to rule the land that these Roman treasures remained upon. Like the Romans, they had a fanciful mythological beginning. Rather than a she-wolf, however, these people believed that they were descended from a sea creature, referred to as a quinotar. This bull with five horns appears as a compilation of the sea god Neptune slash Poseidon combined with a minotaur, which if you combine Poseidon's trident and the two horns of the minotaur, you begin to understand the creature's backstory. For the Germanic peoples believed as the Greeks did, that the kingdom of the gods was saturated with infidelity. Oddly enough, the land of the gods may be one of the things that Thor Love and Thunder got absolutely correct, while well, that and the hilarity that was the constantly screaming space goats. In this particular Germanic mythological origin story, the Quinitine emerged from the sea one day in order to seduce the Queen of the Franks siring the line of the Merovingians. Merovich, the root of their familiar name, means Siebel, suggesting that the family sought to exploit their close connection to the mythological creature. Due in part to their egotistical nature, the Merovingians soon became hated by jealous neighbors, earning them the derogatory nickname of the long-haired people for the lord of the Franks all wore their hair long as a symbol of their masculinity and authority. Indeed, for the next few hundred years, the process of overthrowing a Merovingian ruler involved forcibly shaving his head. But the family didn't claim rule just through the strength of their supernatural origins. Rather, they methodically conquered their way across France under the rule of Clovis I, Remarkably, Clovis, sometime in the late 400s, at the repeated urging of his wife, adopted Christianity as his faith, laying the groundwork first for the establishment of the Holy Roman Empire, and later for a series of religious wars between Catholics and Protestant Huguenots. Clovis left his enlarged kingdom to his four sons, which became a tradition for the Franks. Those four young men, more or less, kept it together by successfully coordinating their kingdoms as one. From that point onward, the Merovingians regularly cycled between periods of unity and destructive familiar backstabbing. The Merovingian kingdoms soon became the most powerful and influential group to emerge in the wake of the Roman collapse. At the urging of his top advisor, a nun who would later become elevated to St. Genevieve, Clovis was the one that named Paris as his capital city. For the act, Genevieve remains known to this day as the patron saint of the city. Clovis was also the first to adopt the fleur-de-lis as the symbol of his rule, establishing symbols that would soon become synonymous with the French. Even his name echoes through to modern-day France, as Clovis evolved slowly over time into Louis, a name which quite a few French kings decided to rule under. But the line of Clovis wouldn't remain in power forever, a fact that his wife publicly predicted when she stated for the record that the Merovingians would come in as lions, then change to wolves and finally end as jackals. Historian Bonnie Ephros details the fall of the dynasty by stating that a combination of factors led to the eventual demise of the Merovingians. Among the leading causes of their eroding power base were first the repeated internal divisions of the kingdom among the royal heirs, Second came a damaging conflict between the Austriasia and Neustrian kingdoms in the Frankish-controlled territories. The third issue involved the decentralization of the king's authority in favor of a rising aristocratic class. Fourth and finally, the rising power of the mayors of the palace contributed to the decline of the long-haired leaders. These mayors served as a modern-day prime minister and met most of the royal obligations that the kings could not, or would not, fulfill on their own. These mayors of the palace were described as great men of the court, and their coup d'etat was led by Pippin of Herstal. While he ruled, the Merovingians remained firmly ensconced as figureheads, essentially trapped within their palaces in an early version of house arrest. Pepin fathered Charles Martel, an elite warrior who became known as the Hammer. Through his adoption of the stirrup, an invention that had been known in China and India for centuries, but was unknown to the European world, Charles created an invincible cavalry force. While his opponents tended to either throw their lances or ineffectively stab with them, Martel's forces were able to mow down their opponents, goring them and their horses by couching their weapons. Historian John Linehart goes so far as to say that the machinery of feudalism, fiefdoms, knights in armor, and finally horse-driven agriculture all rode in on this little invention. Martel, like his father before him, wielded the power of the throne in the Merovingian's name, doling out the royal treasury, linking influential families to his own through intelligent acts of patronage and granting land and privileges to ensure generational ties. Additionally, the hammer went on to Father Pippin the Short, who himself would become a great man of history. Oddly, though, Pippin the Short was likely quite tall. This Pippin was the third of his family line to have wielded power behind the scenes. He began to push towards making his rule official by publicly referring to himself as Duke and Prince of the Franks. After securing the support of the Pope, Pippin forced the last Merovingian ruler to retire to a monastery before taking the title of King of the Franks for himself. He was able to pass the title to his son Charlemagne, officially establishing the Carolingian dynasty. The relationship between the Franks and the Catholic Church only improved with the Pope arriving to personally anoint Pippin and his children. Soon they became the unofficial protectors of the Christian faith. This holy union formed between the church and state would prove to be devastating to their enemies and go a long way to establishing stability within the land of the Franks, Beneath the justification of seizing church land that had been stolen, Pippin's first act as king was to invade Lombard territory in what is now northern Italy. He used the same raison d'etre to invade and expand the eastern borders of France, before then penetrating south to drive the Muslims past the southern side of the Pyrenees. Despite never acquiring a cool nickname like the Hammer, Pippin the Short never lost a battle in his lifetime, and in the year 760, his forces began to ravage Aquitaine as a punishment for how they had handled some of the church's collection of sensitive religious objects. As one might imagine, Pippin, the son of a warrior who took up the sword for the vast majority of his life, died while at war. On his return from Aquitaine, he succumbed to the rigors of constant campaigning at the age of 54. He left a legacy of expansion of both the French borders and Christianity's influence. He institutionalized feudalism in the nation, and he established a kingdom that would become the foremost power of Europe for the next two centuries. But it was his son that permanently changed the game. (laughs) that's not just conjecture. Just as Alexander the Great had served as an inspiration from beyond the grave and across civilizations for Julius Caesar, Charlemagne was a driving force for both Napoleon Bonaparte and Adolf Hitler in their desires to rule a unified Europe. And like those two, his quest to unification was paved with death and destruction. After his brother passed away, Charlemagne was recognized as the sole ruler of the Franks and immediately launched three decades' worth of wars. As his father had, he began with opening hits on the Lombards in Italy and against the Muslims of Spain in order to further expand the realm. But it wasn't just land that he was after. As the Franks consolidated their rule and moved east, they went out of their way to target the pagan faiths of the Saxons. For these Germanic groups, the Franks initiated a simple but effective convert-or-die scheme, and at the massacre of Verdun, nearly 5,000 pagan prisoners were put to the sword over the course of a single day. The massacre was retaliation for a rebellion that had resulted in the death of a handful of Charlemagne's advisors. Historian Janet Nelson finds interesting inspiration for the manner at which he chose to carry out the executions, as beheading, or decollatio, was the traditional Roman penalty for traitors and oath breakers. A medieval Frankish chronicler known as Einhard tells us that the Saxons fought Charlemagne's rule for three decades before finally admitting defeat. He writes that, The war that had lasted so many years was at length ended by their acceding to the terms offered by the king, which were renunciation of their national religious customs and the worship of devils, acceptance of the sacraments of the Christian faith and religion, and union with the Franks to form one people. It is here that we still have a discrepancy in quite a few of the history books that our students learn from. the spread of Islam is regularly characterized as coming about via the sword. All books will teach of Muhammad walking peacefully into heavily armed Mecca, but the centuries that followed were some of the bloodiest in the history of the Middle East, as subsequent leaders forcibly converted their flock and expanded their territory. By contrast, History books highlight top-line converts who were influential in spreading the words of the early Christian church. Take the story of Constantine, the Roman ruler who was driven to conversion after seeing a sign in the clouds, and then ordering his men to paint the cross on their shields before battle the next day. The victory that followed led Constantine to pass the Edict of Milan, legalizing Christianity throughout the Roman lands. Although a battle is embedded within the story, the focus is on his peaceful conversion to the faith and the tolerance that emerged afterwards. Although many of the top-line converts to Christianity came to the religion peacefully, often as was Pippin's and Constantine's case through the efforts of a nagging wife, the Christian faith was spread to the ordinary people of Europe through fire and the sword as well. Charlemagne was so successful militarily in part because of the size of his army as well as his innate gift of foresight. By gathering at least three months of food and six months of clothing in advance of all expeditions, he was able to keep his army in the field during all four seasons. His opponents would have expected the pressure put upon them to release during summer and winter, but the Franc forces proved relentless in all seasons. Unlike his father, he did lose battles, but a simple slow and steady attitude meant that he always wore down his enemies. He seemed to have the same strategy regarding women, steadily fathering at least 18 children with 7 of his 10 known wives and concubines. With some of those children marrying into what became known as the Capetian dynasty of France, as well as the Habsburgs who came to rule large swaths of Central Europe and Spain, Charlemagne earned the nickname of Father of Europe, even if that title was more for the legacy he left behind. He conquered so much terrain that the vast majority of Western and Central Europe came to be ruled by him. This marked the first time in 300 years since the decline of the Roman Empire that so much territory was controlled by a single ruler. This presented an opportunity for those who continued to yearn for the past. It was an opportunity that the church decided to not pass up, and Pope Leo III crowned him as the first Holy Roman Emperor on Christmas Day in the year 800. The Frankish ruler claims to have not known what was set to happen when he walked into St. Peter's Basilica, but he accepted the title and spent the rest of his life dedicated to the expansion of the Catholic faith. This official union between Pope and Emperor allowed for the Church to expand exponentially, establishing the Christian divine right of kings. The influence that Charlemagne's Franks exerted on the continent remains today. He standardized the economic system around silver, ensuring that all of his territory recognized the same coin. Interestingly, this was done out of necessity. As the gold system fell apart after Byzantium ceased allowing African traders into Europe through the ports of Venice and Sicily, the subsequent gold shortage threw the continent into an economic crisis. But fortune favored Charlemagne as he just happened to facilitate a massive influx of silver through trade with Norsemen and Russians, turning it into a continental-wide stimulus that pulled Europe out of the Dark Age economic malaise that had been ushered in with the collapse of Rome. Like all things, his monetary policy mixed religion and politics, as he ceded all money-lending responsibilities to the continent's Jews because of the belief that the practice of collecting interest violates the anti-usury rhetoric throughout the New Testament. For a more detailed look on how practices such as this would go on to contribute to anti-Semitism as well as the Holocaust, I recommend that you listen to the first episode in my series related to the Spanish Inquisition. There we go in depth into the early Christian contributions to continental hatred of the Jewish peoples. At the time, Charlemagne's exception for the Jewish people was too successful, and the profiting of so many entrepreneurs resulted in an abrupt about-face after the king was called out for Jewish citizens being treated so well by his royal court. Charlemagne is most commonly known for producing a Carolingian renaissance as education, the arts and architecture flourished within his empire. Although the printing press remained 700 years away, book collections flourished during this period, with many wealthy families amassing their own private libraries. The emperor himself preferred to eat meals while a book was read to him. Although the most common focus of this literary renaissance was the spread of Christian theology, it is said that if a text survived up to the Carolingian Age, then there's a good chance that it still survives today. Books were salvaged, copied, and protected by the king. Charlemagne's rule is considered by most historians to be the end of the Dark Ages and the beginning of the Middle Ages in Europe. In their minds, he was the true successor of the Roman Empire, building connections that spanned the continent as messengers from his court even reached the caliphate's palaces in Baghdad, resulting in the king of the Franks becoming the proud owner of an Asian elephant named Harun. Charlemagne's likeness and deeds became a model for the formation of chivalry. The unwritten code of conduct that became expected of those who could afford to achieve the status of knighthood. Many even point to his era as the inspiration for England's King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, despite the fact that the Franks wouldn't gain control of England until William the Conqueror emerged victorious in 1066. One can even see quite a few clues that Tolkien borrowed from the Franks for the creation of Gondor a fictional kingdom of proud warriors that was at one point led by the palace stewards before being rescued by a short hobbit named Pippin. Although Tolkien fans steadfastly deny any such obvious connection to their beloved kingdom, the city of Minas Tirith did draw its inspiration directly from the French monastery of Mont Saint Michael. Of course, the return of the king wasn't a wayward ranger. Rather, Charlemagne was the designated heir of the mayors who had become king. His reign was the first of many peaks in French history. Unfortunately, those that followed were not able to sustain his empire. His death occurred at the beginning of the year 814. He had successfully reached the age of 74, and had ruled triumphantly for forty-seven consecutive years. Such a long life meant that he had outlived seventeen of his eighteen children, leaving the empire to his only surviving son, Louis the Pious. When Louis passed away twenty-six years later, the empire became divided into thirds in accordance with Frankish customs, and by 887, the Carolingian Empire was unrecognizable and the title of Holy Roman Emperor would move to an Italian four years later. But just as Caesar became synonymous with monarchy through the German adoption of the word Kaiser and the Russians utilizing Tsar for the man or woman that sat on their throne, Charlemagne's name became manipulated throughout Europe to be synonymous with the word King in the languages of the Czech, Slovak, Polish, Hungarian, Lithuanian, Latvian, Macedonian, Bulgarian, Serb, Croat, and Turkish peoples. Still more proof that he was indeed the father of Europe. So, who are the Franks? And by way of the past, who are the French people that they became? I've had the privilege to visit Paris twice. The first time I was a young nineteen-year-old traveling with immediate and extended family to drop my sister off for a semester overseas. The second time I was a significantly more sophisticated young man traveling with my wife on an educational grant. The two trips, as you might imagine, showed me different sides of the Parisians who without a doubt aren't representative of large provinces of France, each of which still to this day retain their own culture, personality, and distinct history. Having grown up in America during the post-World War II era, my introduction to the French people seemed to regularly involve individuals, including my past history teachers, making jokes regarding how apt the French are to surrender. Growing up, I was particularly fond of the Joan of Arc Simpsons episode, where Lisa Simpson, playing Joan of Arc, tells Homer that she plans to lead their people to victory. To which Homer responds with, Victory? We're French. We don't even have a word for that. The idea of the French being allergic to victory belittles the Francs' entire history as well as most of the French's own. There's a large American nationalistic attitude that we quote unquote saved the French in both world wars. This occasionally shows up in American culture with shirts that identify us as undefeated in world wars, as well as those that claim, if not for us, you'd be speaking German right now. As we'll explore in a number of episodes during this season, The French have one of the world's longest and most successful records of military service. The Normans will conquer England. The French were instrumental throughout the Crusades and became the final home of the order of the Templars. Joan of Arc turned the Hundred Years' War to the French's favor. Louis the Sun King sought to become king of the world and nearly succeeded. Napoleon conquered most of Europe After faltering, he rose in an attempt to do it again, and it was a Frenchman named Troussant Louverture who led the world's only successful slave revolt. The French held against all odds in World War I, and while the Americans did provide the final push, the war was won as much by exhaustion from the Germans as anything else the French had survived the grueling 11 rounds of the knock 'em, drag em out boxing match before we finally jumped in. For them and the world, it was quite the la victorie. Still, there is no glossing over the fact that World War II was a colossal failure for which France can't escape. That failure began with their insistence that Germany pay the price for World War I. The resulting Treaty of Versailles appears in hindsight to have made it inevitable that Hitler would rise to power, that World War II would begin, and the world would be forced to witness and never forget the Holocaust. Their obsession with punishing Germany had a lot to do with the historical quirks of the Frankish people. Alsace-Lorraine and the Ruhr will be deeply desired, and thus fought over by multiple French figures covered in this series. It appears as though the Franks and their successors could never resist the thought that they might be able to once and for all add these areas to their impressive collection of provinces. The shared Germanic tribal heritage of the modern-day peoples of northern Europe means that all of those living among these border nations share the same desire for what have always been extremely productive economic lands that they have historical ties to. The French's exceptionally quick collapse in the face of the German onslaught came about because they made the simple mistake of imagining that World War II would be fought with the same tactics as World War I. But we shouldn't judge them too harshly for this. After all, the U.S. was in the midst of making the same error, as we were still training horse cavalry as our primary method of warfare. Incidentally, the word cavalry itself comes from the Franks. For us, however, we were able to watch how events played out from an ocean away, and after German tanks met Polish horse in battles across September of 1939, we immediately shifted our tactics benefiting from a number of years acting as neutral to figure modern warfare out for ourselves. Still, no one can say that France didn't believe that it was properly prepared for World War II. They had spent the interwar years building the greatest military structure in history, the Maginot Line an above-ground concrete wall lined with overlapping fortifications. The line was 280 miles long, covering all but 20 miles of the shared French-German border. Even more amazingly, it was 16 miles deep at its broadest point. It wasn't put together too hastily either, as it spent 10 years in the design phase. It had 142 bunkers, 352 casements, 5,000 blockhouses, and contained enough steel to build 5,300 tanks, or the equivalent of five of the world's largest battleships. In retrospect, France would have been significantly better off in using its steel for either the tanks or ships. The entire system was connected by exterior roads and internal tunnels, as well as a state-of-the-art-for-its-time system of telephone and wireless communications. Predetermined kill zones were set up, and minefields littered the approach. Although all of Europe was exhausted from the prior conflict, France wasn't reluctant to fight again despite the fact that 52% of all Frenchmen who served in the First World War had perished. Unfortunately, the Germans made all of their preparation irrelevant by choosing a dual approach through Belgium and the unprotected force, which somehow was considered by the French to be impassable, despite the fact that there was a road running through it. The Belgium route, however, wasn't truly overlooked by the designers of the French defense forces, as they believed that any invasion of neutral Belgium would immediately trigger international outrage and bring England into the war, dooming any hopes that Hitler had for victory. The holes in the plan quickly became apparent as Belgium collapsed quicker than anyone could have imagined. Hitler's blitzkrieg techniques, which he had perfected during the Spanish Civil War, combined with advancements in tank technology and aerial bombers, meant that France wasn't given the time to properly adjust its defensive scheme. This doesn't mean that they didn't make a valiant effort. The same French spirit that had thousands of soldiers board taxis in World War I in order to make it out of the city to reinforce the front, still existed during the Second World War. But after the disaster that unfolded at Dunkirk for the British Expeditionary Force, the war for Western Europe immediately turned into one of survival, with the few remaining French forces and leadership becoming trapped on the British Isles. The liberation of Vichy, France, the darkest moment in French history, began on D-Day. It included an elite group of 177 French commandos. Their heroic actions on that day are captured in the film The Longest Day. With the final collapse of the German war machine, France woke up from its self-induced nightmare to a nation that was wrecked asunder and an empire that was irreparably harmed. History teachers are fond of telling our students that the sun never set on the British Empire. The statement allows passive learners to assume that this was unique to the English, thus neglecting the truth that the French Empire was just as impressive, if not more impressive than their British counterparts. Land holdings in Canada, including the still French-speaking Quebec, as well as the lands that made up the Louisiana Purchase already put the French in charge of a significant chunk of the Americas. When one includes Haiti, portions of Brazil, Argentina, and the lands held prior to the Second Franco-Mexican War, their influence in Latin America becomes significantly greater than that of England. But this goes largely unlearned, a point proven each year as Americans celebrate Cinco de Mayo without any understanding that the holiday celebrates Mexico's successful war against the French. In Africa, France controlled portions of northern, east, west, and equatorial Africa. Large chunks of the Middle East, including Palestine, Syria, Lebanon, and Yemen, were controlled by the French. They held a number of islands in the Indian Ocean, including the particularly valuable seashells and Sri Lanka, which paired nicely with what was known as French India. And in Asia, the French were the proud owners of a portion of China, Taiwan, as well as what was perhaps the prize of their holdings, French Indochina. Of course, French Indochina would prove to be quite problematic for the French, and only encouraged jokes about a lack of victories in the aftermath of the establishment of the new liberal world order. Consisting of portions of Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam, the French were violently overthrown in Indochina by Ho Chi Minh and his Vietnamese freedom fighters. The Battle of Dien Bien Phu saw 11,000 French soldiers forced into captivity, with approximately 8,000 of them dying after horrific suffering within Ho Chi Minh's prison camps. Sensing the need for a quick rebound victory after World War II, the United States threw its political weight around in order to back France for the UN Security Council, as well as encouraging them to make a return to Vietnam, a second coming that was even worse than the first. Soon it was the U.S. embroiled against the Southeast Asian foe. Rather than chiding the French for losing its empire, I choose to remember that the U.S. war in Vietnam went just as poorly for us. Their expulsion from Indochina marked a turning point for the French experiment with imperialism. But they weren't alone. Losses in Vietnam as well as setbacks in Central America and the Middle East pushed the previously trigger-happy U.S., back from its own dangerous flirtations with empire. Vietnam had left such a lasting scar upon the American people that it was with great reluctance that in 1990 the nation defended Kuwait against Saddam Hussein. Even after a total victory, America, the undefeated champion of all world wars, resisted its impulse to expand the war to overthrow the butcher of Baghdad then and there. Frankish history is filled with fantastical tales of warriors and victories, but the 20th century left France humbled and in the eyes of some as a nation in decline. Professor Stanley Hoffman was the foremost American defender of France during his lifetime. In 1964, he points out that The stresses of the post-war world, which included hesitations of successive French governments in face of the internal and external problems, produced a series of crises and, in connection with the Algerian question, almost led to civil war. At the time that Hoffman was writing, Frenchman Charles de Gaulle was amassing power at the executive level, presumably in order to launch another power play for the heart of Europe, a move that echoed the actions of such Franks as Henry II, Louis XIV, and Napoleon. Rather than restoring France to its prior status, however, subsequent French rulers switched from wielding Frankish hard power to soft power. American politician and professor Joseph Nye is the foremost expert on the subject of soft power. Unlike military threats, which make up a large portion of a nation's hard power, soft power involves getting other nations to do their bidding because they like them, rather than because they are afraid of them. Nations exert their soft power subtly through things such as their entertainment industries, international aid distribution, and economics. Soft power co-ops, rather than coerces. Wielded correctly, it subtly shapes the preference of others through appeal and attraction. France has been perennially at the top of the soft power 30s power rankings. After placing them on top of the list in 2019, the organization pointed to the strong presidential leadership of Emmanuel Macron, steady economic growth, as well as their leadership regarding the global threats of climate change and Iran's search for nuclear weapons, before discussing the ongoing global appeal of French culture. The Eiffel Tower and the Louvre, which was originally built as a military fortress, continue to boost France's tourism numbers, while the quality and star power of the French national football team makes them regular favorites for the world's top tournaments. Personally, I must say that it is impossible to dislike their midfielder, N'Golo Conte, particularly when you find out that this millionaire drives a Mini Cooper. Napoleon had cannons. The Sun King had the grandeur of Versailles. Joan had her mission from God. But today, France remains a driving force for global cooperation and multilateralism, due in part to the popularity of their fashion industry, which first established itself as a global power during Louis XIV's reign. It appears as though the Franks were destined to reign in France. A legitimate successor to the Roman Empire, their past remains influential in French culture today, and serves to offer clues to the past through the remaining monuments and palaces of eras past. You can still stop at Joan of Arc's childhood home before renting a chateau near Versailles. The Arc de Triomphe stands as a reminder of the bravery of those who lived and died during the French Revolution and Napoleonic Wars, but those events also tore down a number of significant historical institutions including the Bastille. A historical walking tour of Paris today can be a little bit of a letdown, as the guide references the crazy importance of the events that occurred before turning a corner and being shown a modern mall that now stands on the remains of the site. The past influences the present, even if portions of that past are no longer visible within the heart of French culture. As I mentioned, I have had the opportunity to visit Paris twice in my life. In the first one, I was a teenager traveling with individuals who knew little about the nation and its people. We had one really bad experience. Now, to be clear, I didn't experience true discrimination. Far more people have experiences far worse than what I'm about to describe here as my family and I felt as though we were stood up at a restaurant that had been recommended to us. Our experience involved us waiting far too long for a table while being continuously passed over. Once we were finally seated, we waited about 40 minutes before our waiter came once to see us. Again, this is not close to the levels of discrimination that so many individuals throughout the world face on a daily basis. But for someone who comes from a privileged class and society, incidents like this can help open your eyes to how more serious acts of discrimination and intolerance can make one feel. My experience of being treated poorly by a restaurant tends to fall into one of the most commonly known stereotypes of Parisians, namely that they're rude to tourists. Knowing that you can't judge a people by one experience, I was determined to not let that moment color my opinion about one of the world's greatest cities and its people. I finally returned to Paris with my wife when I was in my mid-30s. This time we put in some effort to learn basic French and had a much better grasp on the city and its infrastructure. Having an iPhone helped in both of these departments. Armed with just a slightly better understanding of the culture of Paris, we were able to have an amazing adventure in the city, which allows me to dispel some of the myths that sadly still cling to the Francs today. Let's begin with the myth that they're rude to foreigners and tourists. To explain this to my students, I ask them to consider what the response of a New Yorker would be to a French tourist in their city, if the tourists demanded or assumed that every one of the Big Apple spoke French. Or, what they would do when that same tourist acted out with annoyance that you didn't speak French. English-speaking travelers benefit from the fact that many cultures share our language, but the French have never been willing to bow to the pressures of the English. Most Parisians know English, but they still expect you to try your request in their language first. Doing so will open most doors. But don't expect the same reaction that you might receive at home. The French don't display significant emotions on a regular basis. Culturally, they do more with their words than their expressions. Tourists misconstrue the lack of boisterous smiles as rudeness. Perhaps our waiter's blank reaction to finally getting around to asking about our order wasn't as insulting as we perceived it to be. Alyssa Salzberg, a French teacher in America, points out that for most French people, overtly expressing your emotions, smiling all the time, and just generally being warm and fuzzy and exaggerated makes you seem insincere, maybe even stupid. She writes about a few other interesting stereotypes, such as the one that the French people apparently stink. Shockingly, there are actual statistics to disprove this one, including the fact that 57% of the French people shower each day. While that may seem low, it is only a percentage point behind the numbers that the Atlantic crunches for America, offering a reminder that I occasionally need to look in the mirror and realize that I might appear a bit more grungy than I should. Salzburg also points out that nearly all of the French women that she knows utilizes deodorant and shave their legs. You can look at her blog for more information, including whether you want to know if all French people own poodles, eat frog legs, and only listen to accordion music. Spoiler alert, the answer's always no. I hope through this season's focus on the French, we'll all be able to learn more about the historical background of a people who have influenced a significant portion of human history. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry@gmail.com. at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.